Welcome to Star Trek and the Jews, the monthly podcast that uses Star Trek to boldly explore the worlds of Jews and Judaism. I'm Josh. And I'm Chava. Thank you for joining us today. Today we are talking about Q the Accuser and other divine creatures. We are going to look at Jewish ideas, not only of God, but of other possible divine entities and also of very high-powered beings in Star Trek and see how they compare a little bit. But before we do, we have to talk about what's going on in the world right now. So today's March 19th, 2020. Yeah. And... It was my hope that these podcasts would be evergreen, but I think at the moment it would be irresponsible not to talk about what's happening right now. We're in the midst of a global pandemic, and this feels like the first week, at least here in Canada, where we we really, really feel it. Yeah, we're really quarantined this week. It's about the first one where everyone's really staying at home, and we're not even still on lockdown, so... That's probably going to come soon, hopefully. I think we should talk a little bit about this, because by the time this episode airs, it's going to be another week, and the world has changed so much since last week. Last Thursday, I was still taking public transit to work, and now we don't even see our friends. Yeah, it feels like the world has flipped upside down. Josh and I are recording this in a Zoom meeting, because we can't actually see each other in person. I saw yesterday that the Sephardic chief rabbi of Israel told people... Not only to not go to synagogue or participate in minions, but also that they should check their text messages over Shabbat so that they can see if they've received a message from the Ministry of Health. Like, imagine being told a month ago that the chief rabbi of Israel was going to say, don't go to shul and use your phone on Shabbos. Yeah, I know. That's pretty crazy. But also, I'm really impressed that he said that. I think that's it's bold. There are some communities, yeah. I think, still in New York that are not being as locked down as they should be still having weddings and yeah we should give a heads up that we recorded our reb alert segment that will come in later a few weeks ago so if there's things that you know seem strange and don't seem in accordance with social distancing that's because it was from before we all appreciated the magnitude of what's happening or at least the magnitude that we appreciate right now who knows what we will understand in a week not even that long ago really it was like two weeks ago can i ask you something yeah could you tell me One thing about the current pandemic that is worrying or upsetting you and one thing that's making you happy or hopeful or optimistic? Yeah. So one thing I guess that is worrying me and is that uh, DT, Donald Trump, is uh, pretending now that he was always being careful about this pandemic. And it seems like some people are actually believing him and he's going to have killed hundreds of people if not thousands so I think he's just really dangerous to have around and that's pretty awful what about you what's your bad thing if we're gonna go through those first I mean leaving aside the death toll which I think will be severe I worry about how the world will change forever I have a one-year-old and I don't know what normal is going to look like for her yeah. And I don't know what the next year is going to look like for her, which is such like an important developmental year. And that has me really upset. Very fair. What's something you're hopeful or optimistic or happy about? Actually, I think this will lead to global collaboration in a way that was always possible, but wasn't really forced upon us. So for example, this is the thing I guess that's made me the most happy. In my field of research, one of the leading researchers in the field decided that we should have weekly global 
seminars. He's asking one person every week to give a talk. To me, that's pretty amazing because why didn't we do this before? There's there's no reason and the, and the community is really international. I guess tomorrow is the first one and this person's coming from Sao Paulo, actually not coming from anywhere, is in Sao Paulo and that's it. And that's pretty exciting to me. So I think it'll lead to research opportunities that weren't there before and also maybe even a little bit reduce how much scientists have to travel by air, which is personally interesting to me. How about you, mm-hmm. Josh? I'm really uh, moved by the Jewish communal response to the crisis. I'm moved by the number of communities that have been willing to take drastic steps to to save lives under the principle of pekuach nefesh, doing things like saying, our building is shut down, we're not going to have any minions, we're going to meet on Zoom. But I'm also impressed by the way uh, so many Jews have been mobilizing. And this is true of like many communities, but I see it among Jews. I'm moved to see UJA of Toronto rapidly deploying for like huge collections of, of food and money so that they can help people who don't have access to it, um, which is like so many people now who are seniors who are isolated. And by the huge number of synagogues that that are just doing little things like making lists of all their elderly people and doing wellness checks on all of them. And I think we're we're headed for like really difficult and uncertain times and, and um, people have to stand by each other. Yeah. And we wish a refuah shlema to, to everyone who's ill. Yeah. I really hope that people stay inside because I have parents at risk and Adam's got parents at risk. So we, we just want people to follow the rules and maybe go above and beyond because right now the rule isn't stay inside all the time but maybe it should be and i'm sure by the time this airs it will be yeah that's dr adam by the way sorry dr adam (laughs) should we hit pause on on coronavirus and talk about star trek and the jews i think we should let's bring a little something uplifting to the world if you like star trek and or jews or neither (laughs) Yeah, we have a small but dedicated fan base of people who are uh, anti-Semites that hate science fiction. (laughs) But oh, the hate mail they send. (laughs) Very dedicated. In this episode, we're talking about Star Trek and Judaism and God and divine creatures, which is like a really huge topic. And I think before we can get into that, we have to have like a sort of icky conversation about what we believe oh i don't like it oh yeah i know it's so awkward i don't want to talk about what i believe jews don't really like talk so i shouldn't generalize like that (laughs) i don't really like talk so out loud about like god stuff i feel like most people assume like depending on your circle most people assume you either believe in god or you don't there's very little space for the in-between people Mm-hmm. What about you? Well, let me say this. I'm open to the possibility, but I don't think that God's in, like, the publishing business. You know, I, I consider myself sort of like an amateur student of uh, biblical criticism, and I find that to be, like, a useful way of understanding Jewish texts and the origin of Judaism and things like that. Yeah. Which we can get more into later. Sure. I feel like I'm opening myself up to the internet a little bit. Oh, no. <laughs> I don't I was raised pretty religious so like there's always going to be a little piece of me that like believes that 
there is something. And I guess I don't really believe that there's any connection between God and any of the practices we do in Judaism. I don't really see most Jewish practices as like something for God, except for maybe like praying on Yom Kippur or things like that, where it's like, doesn't really feel like I'm doing anything except communicating with God. Here's sort of my take on it is like, I'm open to the possibility of a divine beyond my comprehension. And I acknowledge like Jewish ritual and tradition as the way that my ancestors have navigated that understanding and that relationship since antiquity. And so I find it like useful for my own for my own search for meaning. Oh, I find it very meaningful to do Jewish rituals, if that's what you mean. Like I I'm what I meant more is that I don't believe that anything we do really has an effect on the scale in oh, heaven or something like that. Like I don't think that anything we do really is connected to any divine power if there is one, but I still find lots of meaning in doing those traditions and it's just sort of like well I still do it because that's what my ancestors have done for sort of thousands of years so I can I can still find that meaningful and find that being a connection to how like to look at life and things like that and to be fair when you say you don't believe that God is you know like actively responding to things you do in the world I mean you're not exactly alone there in Judaism probably like Maimonides is in that camp too yeah, so I'm up there with my Maimonides. Chava and the Rambam. Yeah, me and the Rambam. <laughs> <laughs> There's this podcast called Throwing Shade, which is about Shadim, and we're going to talk about Shadim a little bit later. And they do this thing that I think is really useful where they, they sort of like park their disbelief at the door. And when they're engaging in like Jewish ideas about Shadim, which is like what their podcast is about, they they accept it on face. And I think that we don't have to like go full swing into that, but sometimes we're going to talk about Jewish concepts that like you and I don't 100% buy into, but we're going to discuss them anyway because they're Jewish concepts. Oh, and I like won't be able to hide that I probably used to buy into it. It will maybe come out of me as if I do buy into it just because I'm used to talking about it in a way that is reflecting me being into it in that way. Even though I I don't necessarily buy into many of it, if I think about it rationally, I could still see a little heart heart inside me that's like, yeah, I kind of believe that. It's like our founding story. And I think that a founding story can really give you a basis for how you frame your life. Mm-hmm. And it's probably worth saying that, like, okay, so we don't have to get, like, granular into every single character, but but overwhelmingly, the majority of Starfleet officers that we see portrayed in Star Trek are atheists or non-theists. Yeah. There's a couple of exceptions. There's a stray line from Captain Kirk that implies in one episode that he's a monotheist. There are also some suggestions that maybe Uhura is a Christian. And it's hard to say like how much of that is intention by the writers versus in the original series, there was a lot of inconsistency and sometimes people just took an episode in whatever direction they want. <laughs> but by the 1980s and on, it's like very unusual to see a hero character, Starfleet officer, especially if they're a human who's not atheist or non-theistic. What do you think about Worf? Oh, yeah. Worf is a true believer. I don't think he believes in God because Klingons 
killed their gods. But yeah, Worf <laughs> is in a hundred percent, and he he totally gets hoodwinked by the clone Kalis, which was just like a Scooby Doo trick. Yeah, that's all I'm saying. I think Worf is the exception. Maybe none of the humans. Yeah, we see a lot of Bajorans who have strongly held religious beliefs. One thing I always wished they did was have some atheist Bajorans. There is later in the series a separate Bajoran religion that's not the mainstream one, but there are none who don't buy into it whatsoever. Like, you never hear a Bajoran calling the prophets the wormhole aliens. Yeah, and that's, like, also pretty unrealistic. So you'd think that the Bajorans would have a little bit more diversity in thought, but... I like the approach Chakotay takes, even though they so often mess up portrayal of Chakotay's indigenous belief system. I think it's in the episode Tattoo. He's asked how much of his beliefs he actually buys into and he kind of shrugs and says like do you believe in adam and eve even though he's a practitioner of his religion he's a scientist and a paleontologist and a man of the 24th century and he approaches these problems with pragmatism so josh do you think we should go to rebel alert i think we should definitely go to rebel alert Today we have a very special guest, Rabbi Mimon Maman, and he's the husband of a friend of mine, Shandy, who I grew up with and I've known since I was five, and I love her. (laughs) And he stole her away to New York, which is someplace that I do not live, so I'm very sad about that, but I still get to see her sometimes, so let's go to that. Belay that order, number one. Red alert. Okay, so we're at Reb Alert right now with Rabbi Mimon Maman from Magen David Congregation in Manhattan. Hello, Mimon. Hi, Saba. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Doing well, thank you. So, Mim, did Shandy tell you about our podcast? Only that it's related to Star Wars and the Jews. Not even Star Trek. Star Trek. Darn. We, we will forgive that. I apologize, listeners. Mimon, have you ever watched Star Trek? I have never. So, Mimon, do you want to tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. I am a rabbi of a Sephardic congregation in Lower Manhattan. In addition to being a rabbi, I'm also a licensed social worker uh, practicing psychotherapy in an outpatient mental health setting at Mount Sinai Hospital. I am also a teacher of Tanakh. And rabbinic Judaism. I actually just completed a series on the book of Job. Part of that series was an exploration of an important character, Satan, uh, who presents at the very beginning of the book. So we wanted to ask you some questions about the nature of God in Judaism, divine creatures, for example, angels or the Mm. Satan. If you were to kind of concentrate all of the commandments given in the five books of Moses, and rate number of mentions and number of allotted words to specific commandments, what you'll find, there is an overemphasis in commandments against creating images, worshiping entities other than God, ascribing importance to entities other than God. Those include the sun, the moon, and the stars. There's this repeated warning against anything that may look polytheistic, probably because the inclination of the people who stood at Sinai would have been to relate to divinity through a polytheistic lens. I would dare say 
that of all the 613 commandments, if I were to measure <laughs> the amount of attention given to each, this one would stand out as number one. I remember learning in Hebrew school that God made humans in his own image. That already dips into the whole angels conversation because the commandment to make man or to make Adam is phrased as, and God said, na'aseh Adam, let us make man, betzalmenu, in our image, in our fashion. It's as if he is consulting with some heavenly bodies that apparently mm-hmm. resemble him because he's saying in our image and in our fashion. So that, that kind of speaks to the angels bit. But I don't think that the image of God speaks to anything polytheistic or anything that challenges monotheism. It's more of an expression than anything else. So then you don't think that there's any type of image of God portrayed within the Torah? I think specifically not. The exact opposite. Okay. So, Mimon, can you tell me about Malachim in Judaism? Different divine creature, but also mentioned many times throughout the Bible. I would say the single term used most frequently to describe an angelic being is the Hebrew term malach. However, it's worth noting that the term malach simply means messenger. So, for example, when Jacob knows that he's going to meet his brother Esav, as he prepares for that encounter, he sends malachim. And there the connotation is human messengers, human messengers toward his brother to let him know that he's coming and that he has prepared gifts for their reunion. However, just before that and just after it, the term malach specifically connotes divine angels. So you have the term malache Elohim, angels of Elohim, angels of God. So as Jacob leaves Israel, escaping his brother Esav, and he sleeps on his journey, he has a dream, and in his dream he sees a ladder that's grounded on earth, but its head reaches the heavens, and he sees Malachi Elohim, angels of Elohim, of God, that are Olim Vioridimbo, rising and descending, rising and descending. That's clearly a description of divine creatures. doesn't tell us much about who they are or what they are, but... Before that, we have the Malachim who spoke to Abraham and informed Abraham and Sarah that they would have a child, and they are referred to there as Malachim. Now, of course, Malach just means messenger. So it's a rabbinic tradition that tells us, yes, but these are the type of Malachim, the type of angels that are the divine type. And that's easily implied from the fact that they had the information about the birth of Isaac. What I would also say that's very important that you're not going to hear from a lot of people is that the rabbinic tradition actually de-emphasizes angels as much as possible. It's very hard to say that there's one sole unanimous rabbinic tradition. Talmud is a compilation of many voices, many ideas, many opinions, and goes without saying that there are also many references in Talmud to shedim, demons, and angels, but there is a rabbinic tradition that de-emphasizes angels, not necessarily the existence of angels, but the importance of angels. What are the characteristics of Malachim? So, excellent. So, some of them fly, like the ones on the ladder, the ones on Jacob's ladder, and then, of course, you can't speak of Malachim without speaking of Ezekiel's vision of the chariot, 
in which they're specifically described as actually having wings. You also have the cherubs on the ark, which aren't described in place to Moses, but elsewhere Tanakh tells us that they have wings, that they're ba'alei kenafayim, meaning winged creatures. And so this idea of the angel having wings is definitely biblical, but you also have many malachim that take on the shape of humans. Worth noting, when Moses stands at the burning bush, the entity that is speaking to Moses in the bush, meaning the bush itself, is described as a malach Adonai, as an angel of God, even though its physical characteristics are that of a burning bush. So the malach doesn't have a specific shape or form. It appears in different shapes throughout the Tanakh, depending on the circumstance. What about the significance of having different malachim that actually have specific names? The names Gabriel, Michael, Raphael are attributed to the angels that visit Abraham. How are they different and why is there a differentiation between them? So the, the tradition of malachim having proper nouns of these kind of associates of God come from the book of Ezekiel and from later rabbinic sources. We do have this original reference of God consulting with these entities about the creation of man, let us make man, and that implies that there were these beings there with God. Does that feel a little icky? And I I ask that (laughs) because I think of Judaism as so intensely monotheistic. And you mentioned the great emphasis that the commandments related to monotheism have compared even to all other commandments. So does that kind of stick out as something a, a little bit funny in our tradition? It does. And that's particularly why it's been de-emphasized in the rabbinic tradition. Genesis chapter 6, specifically the rabbinic tradition cited by Rashi, de-emphasizes the angelic identity of these sons of God and says sons of Elohim, Elohim referring to human dignitaries, humans in positions of power, and the daughters of man referring to the daughters of the peasant. It's an accusation of the powerful men of the bourgeoisie taking advantage of young peasant women because they think they're entitled to. But the simplest way to read those words is that these are angelic creatures, but the rabbinic tradition wants to de-emphasize that. Wherever might uh, Rashi living in medieval France have gotten that idea? Yeah. Is it Gaston, uh, like kind of a, a part of the upper class, and Belle? Uh, as a daughter of a peasant. Our next podcast will be uh, Disney animated classics and the Jews. Yes. Um, and we'll invite Mimon back for that, right? Definitely. Mimon, can you tell us a little bit about Shadim? So Shadim is typically assumed to be a rabbinic term uh, that refers to harmful divine entities. So angels whose mission on earth is to inflict harm upon people they're typically assumed to be products of Kabbalistic imagination, but there's definitely a reference to these entities in the Talmud and other mainstream rabbinic sources. The term Shadim itself does appear once in Tanakh, but it's actually a reference to pagan gods. However, the rabbinic tradition will identify other Shadim by name in Tanakh. So, for example, one of the Shadim who's mentioned in Talmud is Keten, 
or Ketev Meriri, which I think in, in its biblical context is a reference to an epidemic. And they'll identify a verse in Psalm 91 where the psalmist is describing his confidence in God. And specifically there says, Miketev Yashud Tzoraim. God will protect you from all things that he describes, and he will protect you from Ketev, who lurks in the afternoons. Ketev, typically, again, assumed to be an epidemic, some kind of invisible but harmful disease or entity. By the rabbinic tradition, Ketev is a shed that inflicts harm on human beings. In the rabbinic tradition, then, the Shadim are considered angelic creatures, but in the Tanakh, you'd say, then, they're uh, pagan gods or false gods, not considered divine. Correct. Yes. Can you tell us about the Satan? Ooh. So the term Satan appears actually throughout Tanakh. However, it's not a proper noun. It's not a reference to an entity. It's simply a description of uh, prosecution. Satan as an entity first appears in the prophet Zechariah. The setting is the end of the first Babylonian exile, preparation for return to Jerusalem and reconstruction of the temple itself in Jerusalem. And the chosen high priest is an individual by the name of Yehoshua. And Yehoshua, it's implied, had married a Gentile woman or his children had married Gentile women. Either way, he kind of returning from exile isn't what we would consider a perfect candidate for the high priest because he's got a track record of sins. And that's where we first hear about Hasatan, the Satan, the character named Satan, because Satan appears in, in Zechariah's prophecy as standing to the right of Joshua to prosecute him, to make the case before God that Joshua doesn't deserve to be the high priest. It doesn't tell us much about him. He speaks for the prosecution. So he's kind of like a lawyer in this scenario. Exactly. So are you telling me that all the lawyers are evil? There's a role for a prosecuting voice and there's a role for a defending voice. Ultimately, neither side is good nor bad. When does Hasatan take on the image of evil? That's in the book of Job. So you have this guy, Eov, Job. We know that he doesn't live in Israel, and we know that he's not an Israelite person. He's a servant of God, and we also know that he's very successful. And then we learn about Hasatan, Satan. God convenes his court. He calls the B'nai Elohim, the sons of God, to a meeting, and Satan is among them. And the verse tells us that Satan is presenting to the meeting after having toured the earth. So what's he doing touring the earth? I guess he's looking for humans to prosecute. And he says to God, have you considered your servant Job? Specifically, that Job's righteousness is directly linked with his prosperity. And that if God were to take away his prosperity, Job's righteousness would fall apart. That's kind of cruel, right? What, what, what do you have against Job? I mean, what did he do to you, Satan, that you're taking this goodness away from him, that you're challenging his right to live peacefully. Ultimately, God takes on the challenge and invites Satan to take everything but his life. Interestingly enough, though, as you continue reading the book, never are Job's afflictions attributed again to Satan. 
They're attributed directly to God. And actually, God takes ownership of that later in the book. At the beginning of the book, God and Satan are two independent entities, God being a neutral party, Satan having this evil side to him that he's trying to take Job out of balance. As the book progresses, God takes ownership over Job's suffering, as if to say God and Satan are one. There isn't this entity apart from God named Satan, so much as it's God who afflicts people, it's God who's his own prosecution, and Satan is just this literary description of a prosecution versus a defense. It occurs to me that in the collective cultural understanding of Satan or the devil or something like that, an idea exists out in the ether of of an entity that is the source of all evil, that is an opposite somehow to God. Where does that idea come from and how does it differ from the Jewish understanding of Hasatan? So I'm, I'm no expert in Christian theology. I could say that ideas of Christian origin, I, I actually don't know, but it isn't the biblical description of Hasatan. Rabbi, this week for our listeners' Hebrew school homework, they watched the Next Generation episode, All Good Things, the final episode of Star Trek The Next Generation. And this episode really bookends the premiere of Star Trek The Next Generation, where a powerful creature called Q shows up to put the crew of the Enterprise on trial on behalf of humanity, saying that they're an inferior species, unworthy of space travel and unworthy of survival. But it seems that Q, in his elaborate ploys that he sets up for the crew, is not truly trying to destroy them, but rather trying to present challenges that give them opportunities to prove themselves and maybe learn something about themselves. Does that sound in any way familiar to any Jewish concepts? I think that's truly what Hasatan is all about. I don't think that Satan, who accuses Job, is trying to kill Job. I think that he's trying to present Job's shortcomings, or he's trying to present elements of Job's life that might be a hindrance to Job's full self-actualization. And he's challenging God to challenge Job to bring that about. That makes a lot of sense, especially if Hasatan is actually just another aspect of God. Would it make sense that this divine creature's only purpose is evil? Couldn't agree more. Thank you so much, Rabbi Maman from Magenta V Congregation in Manhattan for joining us on Rev Alert for this episode. And I'd like to uh, formally extend an invitation to yourself and to all of your listeners. If you ever find yourself in lower Manhattan for Shabbat or in the New York area, you are more than welcome to visit our congregation for services. Sephardic or not, it is sure to be an experience. Yeah, I've been there. It's really, really wonderful. So thank you again so much for joining us. Thank you. Take care. And we're back. That was fascinating, Chava. Yeah, that was really interesting. Let's take care of a couple of housekeeping items. First of all, we never really mentioned our release schedule. New episodes of Star Trek and the Jews come out every month, but we don't follow the Gregorian calendar. We follow the Hebrew calendar, so new episodes come out every Rosh Chodesh. And if you're not sure when Rosh Chodesh is, just look up to the sky at night. If it's a new moon, there should be a new Star Trek and the Jews, which I guess makes us more of a 
Moon track. Have a moon track. Moon track. That's not funny, Josh. <laughs> I tried. Sorry. I also wanted to let people know how you can get in touch with us. So we're on Twitter at Star Jews, uh, and we're on there uh, posting about Star Trek and Jews, or if you're Chava, posting pictures of your dog. Those are the only photos in my phone. I'm sorry. <laughs> and lastly, I wanted to give a shout out to our friends at the Intertractional Podcast. This is a really fascinating podcast. It's hosted by two Jewish women. There's lots of uh, interesting uh, Star Trek and Jewish-related content on it. Uh, I learned a lot by listening to it. Uh, they look at intersectional issues in Star Trek. Recently, they've been going episode by episode through uh, season one of Star Trek Picard, but they also do all sorts of topics related to intersectionality in Star Trek. So go check out Intertractional. This month, we asked our listeners to watch All Good Things, which is the final episode of Star Trek the next generation um, and it's an episode where Q closes off the series the way he started it by putting Picard and all of humanity on trial and acting in a very satani way Q is the elephant in the room yeah in this conversation so is Q God no I think Q is not God for a few reasons as a Jew if there is a God I think there's only one is that Fake sense. Monotheism. <laughs> yeah, I'm into monotheism, just like Mimon was talking about. You're at the, the number of gods is either zero or one. Yeah, to me, it's either zero or one. Exactly. Maybe other divine creatures, but definitely not more than one god. So Q can't be god because although unless you say that like the continuum is god and then like Q is just an aspect of the continuum, maybe that I would buy. Sort of a Kabbalistic yeah. approach. Even then, I feel like not really, because like he argues with himself too much then, if that's the case. Also, he's a dick. <laughs> I don't know. The, the god of, uh, of the Tanakh definitely is not always on God's best behavior. <laughs> the god of the Tanakh sort of seems like not messing around with the Israelites or any any people that we encounter in the Bible. Whereas Q is... Except Job. Except Job. Yeah, that's true. Except Job. Apparently he really messed around with Job, but that wasn't even really him. That was like, I mean, it was him, but it was like the Q in him. <laughs> right. Yeah. One of the challenges in understanding the nature of God in Judaism is that the nature of God in Judaism has shifted radically over time. And this is where like, I like to put on my critical biblical studies hat. So we say on Passover that our ancestors worshipped idols, and I agree. They definitely did. But when they became monotheists, well, that's a little bit uncertain. What do we really mean when we say critical biblical studies? We're basically talking about like scholars that look at the whole context of the Bible to understand it. And in their view, the Bible is something that's written by Israelites and Judeans in the periods of the, the late kings and throughout the Babylonian exile and the return in Persia. And the understanding of what God is like changed radically in those periods. And so you see tensions between different understandings. And I think like one of the central tensions in critical biblical studies is, was monotheism like an evolution? Was it something where like the Israelites and or Judeans slowly went from having polytheists and then maybe one God that was most important and then only one God that was important and then denying all others? 
or was monotheism a revolution? And personally, I lean towards that one, that authors of important parts of the biblical texts tried to subvert the existing tropes of polytheism to make a radical statement about the transcendent nature of God. Does that make any sense? Um, I guess it depends when you think Genesis was written. I think it's pretty common knowledge that Genesis was not written by the same person that wrote Deuteronomy and like all the different parts of the Bible are uh, from various different authors. Not only that, but I I would say that for the most part, they're written over long periods of time by many different authors that have many different interests that are like fundamentally human interests too. And some of those interests are related to politics and power and control. And some of those interests are related to attempts to find meaning and order in the universe. One thing that I think is really fascinating about the creation story in particular is the way it subverts the tropes of Canaanite polytheism in order to show that the God of the Hebrews is unlike any other God. And I'm going to throw a bit of a funny term here, the meta-divine realm. So if you think about the Greek gods, for example, the Greek gods are very powerful, but they have sex and have children and kill each other. And even their own destinies are controlled by like the three fates. And so they're subject to this meta divine, like a layer above humans, but that still controls their lives. Whereas for the most part, the Tanakh depicts the Hebrew God as transcendent beyond all of that. And the singular as well. Right. So whereas um, in the, the other Canaanite traditions, the universe is created in this cosmic warfare where different gods kill each other and Yam is split open and used to hold down the waters from below and hold the sky up above. In Genesis, and particularly in like the Genesis 1 narrative, because there's two different creation stories, how does God create the world? With words. Instead of a cosmic battle, God just like says it and it's done. Definitely a different level of supreme. The Hebrew God doesn't die, can't be injured, nothing controls God, and in so many ways is radically unlike humans. Whereas the polytheistic gods who are subject to the meta-divine realm, they live out very human problems like living and dying or, you know, having a son or things like that. Bringing it back to Star Trek... Q very much is not beyond the meta-divine realm. No, totally not. He seems easily hurt. He's once um, transformed into human form. He does battle with other creatures, has conflicts with other members of the Q continuum. When he becomes a human or he's ejected from the continuum, he's such a baby about it too. I think of Guinan holding up her hands in defense in the episode Q Who when uh, Q appears in 10 forward and... And Q seems genuinely like, you know, there's something she might potentially be able to do to harm him. Q pulls a trick where he seems omnipotent and omniscient, but we don't really know that. And it's, you know, hard to distinguish what's the Arthur C. Clarke line. Any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. (laughs) 
Picard seems very aware of that in other episodes, like in Devil's Do when they meet Ardra, and he even considers that like Ardra could be Q. But um, nope, they find out Ardra is just like again another like Scooby Doo villain with uh, with all kinds of holograms. Yeah, it does actually really seem like Q cannot doesn't know what's happening when he's not there. So really, not an omniscient character. I just was watching. Mm-hmm. An episode from TNG season four at the end. It's the one where Vash comes back to the uh, Enterprise and like wreaks havoc. I love Vash. Yeah, I love Vash too. She's hot. (laughs) And then after after that whole thing starts to go down, Q is like, oh, um, I want to do a favor for JL. And he's trying to figure out what would be a good favor. And then he sort of has to peek his head into the room, or Q has to peek his head into the room to see what's going on between Jean-Luc and Vash. And it just, it really illustrates how much Q is not omniscient and is not really a god-type figure. We even see during the Q Civil War in Voyager that some Q die. I think also they talk about certain Q being executed in Next Gen. The parents of that student intern, you know, the one who went dancing with Riker on the hull of the ship Mm -hmm. after her powers awakened in her, and something about Commander Riker also awakened in her. (laughs) Ooh. (laughs) The one where the Q wants to kill himself... That's Death Wish. Okay, yeah, uh, in Death Wish. So that's an interesting one because um, once again we see Q in the courtroom. Mimon talked about Hasatan, the prosecutor, and I think that's that's a really fascinating analogy for Q. Yeah, I think it's shockingly accurate. He does sort of present himself as a judge in the bookending episodes, the pilot encounter at Farpoint and the finale, all good things, but he's really like a prosecutor sitting in the seat of the judge. He doesn't seem like he's an ultimate judge there. And he, after all, is the one who's brought forth charges that humanity is either unworthy of space travel or unworthy of survival. As he says to Picard, the trial that never ends. So while Q is sitting in the judge's seat, Um, I agree with you. He totally seems like he's the prosecutor. And almost towards the end of both of those episodes, it almost feels like the true judges of that scenario aren't Q at all and are actually the humans that he's testing. So it's sort of like Mm -hmm. uh, JL recognizes what he's maybe learned from the situation, um, maybe similar to Job. I think that's also borne out in the episode Tapestry, where Q puts Picard through quite an ordeal. He gives him the opportunity to live through a regret in his life in a you know very Dickensian fashion. Picard chooses, with all of the insights and wisdom he's gained, he tries to not get in a bar fight as a cadet that resulted in his uh, heart being replaced, which would cause his death many years later. But he ends up not happy with the outcome. Having made different decisions, he's this this sad... Blue uniform. Blue shirt. <laughs> <laughs> Who's never been able to to take action in his life. And Q, in that episode, he's unlike any other time we see him, where like he really genuinely seems to be showing up only for the purpose of showing Picard a fundamental truth and challenging him in a way that brings forth his best self. Yeah, I really like that episode. I found Tapestry also just really dove into Picard's personality in a way that we hadn't so much seen before. Like, we do see him as a controlled character, and that 
really takes us into the young hood of someone who can get to that type of position who's a little bit risky and takes chances and like is willing to stick up for himself to have the confidence to get to the point where he's captain Hmm. and you know i don't want to give spoilers yet for for season one of picard but i'll just say that remembering episodes like tapestry makes the depiction of picard in season one of picard feel very authentic to me yeah Definitely. Death Wish is a fascinating one because Q, like the John Delancey Q, is an actual prosecutor. This is the assisted dying episode of Voyager. And I guess if if Q is the prosecutor there, that means the true judge, God, would have to be Captain Janeway. And I'm I would agree totally, with that. totally on board with that. <laughs> yeah, totally on board. I like in that one that, um, that Tuvok acts... Uh, for the defense, even though he like fundamentally believes that Quinn is wrong, yeah, and that that uh, assisted dying shouldn't happen, and that, or at least that it shouldn't happen in that case. Um, yeah, which is kind but, of interesting, just in general, for the conversation of assisted dying, which is super not allowed in Judaism, um, at least not Orthodox Judaism. Sorry, I should clarify that conversation for a later episode. <laughs> sorry. <laughs> So we talked about Q as Hasatan. Could Q potentially be a Malach or a Shade? I think maybe a Shade. Mm-hmm. But like the Shade that is like not actually bad, you know? Right. Sometimes he is just a trickster. Like like sometimes I think Q just shows up to to mess with people and bring his mariachi band and have a little fun. Yeah. Get punched in the face by Cisco or whatever. The thing he strikes me as is bored. Like, he yeah. just seems like he needs someone to entertain him, and he's somehow decided that humans are entertaining. The only thing I could think of Q as a malach, as an angel, is at the very, very end of All Good Things, like before the poker scene, the the end of the, the courtroom scene, he comes really close to Picard, and he's about to whisper something in his ear, and then he just says... You'll find out. And I think that Q is saying that he does have like a divine message to deliver, but he doesn't really quite mm-hmm. deliver it there. That's true. That is very angelic. It just, it, you're right. It sounds like he's sort of giving a hint of what's to come. And that is sort of what the angels tend to do, telling Abraham that he's going to have a child or even just warning Moses about his special powers. We were talking earlier about Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, but Q actually brings uh, Picard back to the beginning of all life on earth or or rather oh, yeah, the, I love the that. failure of life to begin he like stuck his hand in some goo and was like this is where the amino acids go together and make life mm-hmm. and i think for those who might think of of q as god a very good argument there is that q never claims to be god or never says that he created the universe quinn going back to death wish quinn actually like goes and hides Voyager in the Big Bang uh, as a way of like trying to avoid John Delancey Q and again it doesn't seem like the, the Q like caused the creation of the universe or that Q had anything to do with life having been created on Earth no definitely not more like just someone that can explore all of time and didn't actually make anything yeah and so you know Mimon talked about the divine council uh, observing the creation of the universe in, in Genesis. And Q is, is that there. He's, he's not the active participant. He's an observer to creation. 
Should we talk about a few other really high-powered beings in Star Trek and maybe do like a quick hit on a few of them? Sure. Why don't we start with the um, the so-called god of Shakari. This is the one who you might ask of him, what does God need with a starship? <laughs> yeah, that movie <laughs> was something else. Yeah, what do you think about him? I think he's shockingly uncreative. They just like made a picture of sort of like a an old man with a white beard, which is like such a classic depiction of God. Like they couldn't come up with anything better. Well, to be fair, they do show him as in that fast clip scene where he shows lots of different faces of lots of different gods. That's true, but it's almost like he's like, this is the god that you'll recognize, so I will show up as this old man with a beard because that is who humans consider as divine. So I've got two things on the god of Shakari. First of all, the reason his planet is named Shakari is because they wanted Cybok to be played by Sean Connery. Really? Yeah, but they couldn't get him, so they they just butchered his name and made it the planet. Shakari, Sean Connery. The second is that I don't think we have to delve into Judaism to understand what the god of Shakari is, because I think we have a complete canonical answer, and it comes from the next-gen episode, The Nth Degree. That's the one where Barkley starts getting really, really Mm. smart. He starts getting these, like, visions, and then he takes over the ship, modifies its engines, brings them to the center of the galaxy, which is also where Shakari was, and like a giant floating head appears, and one that also mentions that his species don't have access to starships. So I think we don't even have to think about if he's like a Shade or a Malach or Hasatan or whatever, because like, no, canonical Star Trek says that, well, I guess it's not canonical Star Trek, but my headcanon says that he's a Cytherian, just like in that Very episode. Very reasonable assessment, in my opinion. What about the Organians? From the original series episode, Errand of Mercy. They kind of make me think of angels. I mean, I guess angels are not considered nonviolent in the Bible in any way. But somehow having that above, above all this attitude really is very angelic to me. They're just like, well, you guys can fight. But at the end of the day, actually, we don't want you to. So in this episode, the Organians are being invaded by the Klingons. The first Klingon episode. It's an M-class planet, and Kirk and Spock are down there trying to protect this species from the Klingons. And they don't understand why the Organians are refusing to have some kind of violent resistance against the Klingons, because the Klingons are just sort of taking over, and their depiction is super racist. Oh, because the Klingons are just painted in brown Well, they're just like painted brown with like pointy mustaches it was pretty off they're just like smudged dirt on their face and like didn't even smudge it on their neck turns out at the end of the day that the organians are actually totally superior beings that were preventing a war between the klingons and the federation and kirk and the klingon leader sort of bond over that fact that they're not allowed to fight each other because they both want to i just found it very angelic in that way it was like you will be peaceful And um, you'll bond over the fact that we are not letting you fight. Yeah, they bring a message of peace and it's an imposed peace. And we learn of them through the lens of like our heroes, Kirk and Spock and the crew 
who trying to protect them. But I think from the Organians' perspective, they're just as interested in making the Federation not fight as making the Klingons not fight. And their peace is not optional. They impose their peace on both sides. Malachim are understood as not having free will. They simply do as the divine commands. And I think that's an interesting metaphor when we're thinking about the Organians. They're in an Enterprise episode too, but it's it's, uh, eh, not that great. We're not going to talk about the animated series so much, but there's the episode, The the Magics of Magus 2, which has a character called Lucian that has some characteristics like the Satan that are very, very obvious because he like looks like what we think of as the devil. We're not going to dive too deep into that episode, but I'll just say that if you're someone who's seen all the rest of Trek and are not so sure about the animated series, Magics of Magus 2, as well as an episode called Yesteryear, are really interesting ones to start with. Another interesting one is a character called Nagilam from Where Silence Has a Lease. Do you remember yeah, that one? Yeah, the one with the really poorly animated face. <laughs> that's right yeah who appears out of the hole in yes. space he's a space he's hole like face. a big void face thing within the realm of his space hole <laughs> Megillum is nearly omnipotent he's not omniscient he doesn't seem to like fully understand what the characters are thinking and at, at one point he like tries to imitate them and doesn't do it very well but he is like very very mm-hmm. powerful what he's missing from the Jewish understanding of the divine is benevolence. Nagilam has nearly unlimited power, with at least within his realm, but he just uses it for his own amusement. And humans are like ants to them. Like he wants to see how many ways they can die just for the curiosity. He's what of I it. fear mice see us as as scientists, because he's just like let let's do experiments on these puny humans and see what happens he just sort of puts the enterprise in their place a little bit it's like whenever they're acting a little bit too much like they run the place gotta put in some powerful creature that's gonna be like actually you have no power and you're stuck in Mm. my void and i can kill you if i want I will say this about the episode where silence has a lease. Like a lot of early next-gen ones, even if the plot doesn't have a whole lot of redeeming qualities, it produces amazing, amazing (laughs) gifts. Yes, (laughs) definitely. Some some very high-quality gift material, like the the guy at the con reaching his hands up to the face as he, what is he, like explode or his skin boils? I forget. You've seen it. I think Data is honestly more of a, well, I guess Data's a robot. But he's a greater being, I think. Yeah. I don't see him as an angel, though, nor do I see him as a shade. He's definitely not God. He, to me, is like the definition of B'Tselem Elohim created in the image of the divine. Oh, totally. Because his creator, Dr. Noonien Soong, tries to make a human out of him. He doesn't try to make like a perfect synthetic life form that's a supercomputer. He, he tries to create... A person. Yeah, it's like his son. And yet Data has infinite curiosity, empathy, patience, things that that we would attribute as the benevolent characteristics of God. Some of the best uh, characteristics a person can have, basically, right. Data has. Mm-hmm. Hey, Chava. Yeah. Did you find an Afikoman in this month's episode? Did I ever? Well... Really, actually, Adam found it, so I feel like I have to give him that Dr. credit. Dr. Adam? Sorry, Dr. Adam found it. So basically, the star date in which this episode is happening, if you add up the numbers, kind of like Gematria, where like you add up the letters, 
um, in specific words, and then like it has some number meaning in Judaism. Here, they add up to 36, and 36 is two times 18, and 18 is the number, the gematria for the word chai, which is life, and that is our afikomen. The chayim. Josh, did you find an afikomen in this month's episode? I think I did. Okay, so many years ago, and I'm sorry that I don't remember the source, but many years ago I learned that there's a tradition that if a great Torah scholar enters the room, uh, you stand up for them. And it's not out of respect for them, but out of the Torah knowledge that you possess. And the question then is, what do you do for a great Torah scholar who, because of dementia, no longer possesses that Torah knowledge? So then you would be standing for the person rather than for the Torah knowledge within them. The answer is that you still stand because by having learnt it, it fundamentally changed them. And even though that Torah knowledge is gone from their mind, the person has been changed by the process of having learned it. And I think I really saw something like that come through in the treatment of the older Picard, that even though in all good things, the old man Picard is suffering intellectually, for the most part, the characters are are willing to give him the love and respect and the trust that he deserves because he's Jean-Luc Picard. And even if he's not the same man he was on the bridge of the Enterprise, having been that man changed him and they still respect that. Josh, that's beautiful. Thank you. I'm tearing up over here. That's it for Star Trek and the Jews. Thank you for joining us today. Your Hebrew school homework for next month is to watch season one of Star Trek Picard, the entire season. Thank you to Rabbi Mimon Maman for being our guest on Reb Alert. Our opening fanfare is arranged by Dr. Adam Snyderman. End credits are Desert of the Lost Souls by Kevin McLeod of Incompetech.com. We'll see you next month for our wrap-up of Jewish themes in season one of Picard. And before we close, I want to say that we're living in uncertain times, and we wish everyone well. <laughs>